It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you need a daily dose of rusty hinges in your life? Every day on my social medias, I post an on-the-stay-in-history as seen through the Rusty Hinges lens. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just search for Rusty Hinges and then hit the like or follow button. All right, on with the show. A guard walked the gangway of Alcatraz Prison one Tuesday morning demanding the inmates to rise and shine. When he got to the cells of John Anglin, Clarence Anglin, and Frank Morris, the men did not rise and they did not shine. They had escaped. 58 years later, these three Houdinis get all the attention, but these were just three of 36 men who attempted to escape the rock. This week... I'm telling the stories of the other 33. Welcome to Rusty Hinges. I'm Lars, and this is the story of the Alcatraz Swim Team. When Spanish explorer Juan Manuel de Ayala sailed into the San Francisco Bay, he screamed first because, well, he was a European and as such assumed he invented America. As Ayala mapped the Bay Area, he started naming things randomly as one does. One island in the bay he called Alcatraces, which means Gannett in English. And what is a gannet? I'm no ornithologist, but I gave it a Google. A gannet is a seabird indigenous to... not California. It's not even found in Spain. So naturally, it makes the perfect name for a Spanish explorer to give to an island off the coast of San Francisco. When English took over the area as the predominant language, the name became anglicized to Alcatraz. The island just sort of sat there for a while, named but largely ignored since it was rather unforgiving. It was cold, damp, and generally miserable. The beaches were more like rocky cliffs, but Alcatraz proved itself a useful space during the California Gold Rush. The boom that the Gold Rush brought to the Bay Area meant it was finally worth protecting. 
the U.S. Army built a citadel on the island and loaded it up with cannons because, well, who doesn't love cannons? It was only a few years before the value as a prison was established. Like I said, it was miserable and the frigid bay waters were better than all the barbed wire in the world. In 1909, the original fortress was demolished to make room for a new military prison. And who better to build it than the prisoners? It's kind of fun when we talk about how slavery is legal in the U.S., while having slaves do labor behind prison walls all the time. But that's another story for another day. Back to Alcatraz. Being escape-resistant isn't the same as being escape-proof, and a number of military prisoners did make it off the island, largely in boats that were left along the shore. So in 1933, when the military turned the prison over to the federal government, security was tightened. Alcatraz was a maximum security prison of last resort for the worst of the worst. The feds were eager to show the public they were ready to be tough on crime as the crime rate had risen during the 1920s and 1930s. Of course, crime flourished in large part thanks to prohibition and then out of the desperation of the Great Depression, both problems directly related to the federal government. So they're basically saying they were going to get serious about the problem they created. Eh, sounds about right. So let's say you're a bank robber in 1934, and you want to go to Alcatraz. To get there, you really have to prove yourself an exceptionally bad prisoner. Al Capone, for instance, was sent to Alcatraz because he was able to manipulate and bribe his way to creature comforts at other prisons. Or the Birdman of Alcatraz, Robert Stroud. He assaulted more people in prison than he did outside of prison. But he was actually sent to Alcatraz after he was caught making bathtub gin using scientific equipment he was allowed to keep in his prison cell. And then, there is my old friend Count Victor Lustig, who proved himself a capable escape artist when he, well, escaped a prison in New York. And that is the particular breed of Alcatraz inmate we are interested in today, the Masters of Escape. These men weren't sent to Alcatraz to be reformed, like those who simply didn't follow prison rules well. They were sent there because the island was considered escape-proof. Even if someone managed to get through the bars, fences, barbed wire, and armed guards, they then had to get across the bay to the mainland. And the icy cold, choppy waters made that incredibly difficult. But difficult does not mean impossible. Today, swimming from Alcatraz to San Francisco is a fun event that a bunch of weirdos actually pay to do. In the 29 years Alcatraz served as a federal prison, there were 36 men who attempted to escape in 14 separate incidents. These men thought the promise of freedom was worth the risk. Of course, there is the most famous escape, the one that may have been successful. And we'll get to that one in the next episode. Today, let's chat about the poor bastards who didn't make it. Alcatraz was only running as a federal prison for about two years when Joe Bowers decided to make a break for it. One of the privileges that men could earn 
was the right to have a job. That's right. Manual labor was your reward on Alcatraz for not stabbing anyone. Bowers got his gold star and worked burning trash in the incinerator. Well, it was more like a bronze star, since this job was one of the most hated on the island. It was heavy manual labor, alone and in the cold of the bay. At 11.20 on April 26, 1936, the lunch bell was rung and the inmates were supposed to head back to their cells to prepare for the meal. Bowers decided, nah, and instead charged the fence. He was spotted by guards right away and told to come back, but he kept going. The guards fired two warning shots into the ground, but Bowers began scaling the fence. He got to the top of the fence and made his way across when the guards took aim. I mean, when the only thing between you and a gun is a chain-link fence, it's best not to push your luck. But Bowers did, and the guards fired. Bowers did get down from the fence at that point, in the form of a 60-foot drop off the cliff and into the bay below. Owing to the tide being out, he landed on some nice jagged rocks. The rocks surprisingly didn't injure Bowers that badly. It was the bullet lodged in his lung that was a tricky thing, and he was dead by the time guards could get to him. Perhaps his fate was enough to deter others because the next attempt wasn't until over a year and a half later. In 1937, bank robbers Theodore Cole and Ralph Rowe had earned the privilege to work in the shop where they made rubber mats for the Navy out of old tires. On December 16th, the guards came around to do a headcount at 12.50 p.m. Cole and Rowe were present and accounted for. Forty minutes later, when they were next checked on, the men had vanished. The prison was locked down as guards searched for the men. But unlike Bowers' impulsive trip over the fence, Cole and Rowe had planned this. A window in the shop had two bars sawed off. It would have been impossible to saw them in the 40 minutes the men were left unguarded. A closer inspection showed grease and shoe polish all over the bars. It appeared the men had sawed the bars, little by little and day by day, covering the damage with the grease. None of the guards noticed, which seems an odd oversight, since Cole was at Alcatraz because he kept trying to escape other prisons by, you guessed it, sawing at the bars. But powers of observation was not a job requirement for Alcatraz. After getting through the bars, Cole and Rowe silently broke the glass window pane and cleared the opening so they could get out safely. It was a stormy day with a dense fog covering the bay and the island. It made the search for the men difficult, and the only trace that was found was a wrench from the shop that they used to force open a gate. Assuming the men wouldn't have been dumb enough to try to get off the island on a day when the water was choppy and the current strong, guards spent several days searching the island and even throwing tear gas into areas the inmates could be hiding. But all indications, including their literal footprints from the window to the shore, made it seem like they had, in fact, been that dumb. Police guarded the shore of San Francisco, waiting to pull the men out of the water if they happened to make it to the other side, which, of course, they didn't make it.
there was no way the men had made it to safety by swimming. Even the best swimmer would have found the rough water and strong currents impossible to overcome. The men had prepared their escape, so maybe they had prepared a raft of some sort or flotation devices. But did I mention the rough seas? Neither of these would have kept them from being washed out into the ocean. The only chance of survival would have been a boat. Did either man use some underworld connections to get a boat to pick them up? A look into their past showed them to be nothing more than two Oklahoma stick-up men, with any gang or mob connections being weak. Though tips and sightings of the men came in for years afterwards, particularly in the Midwest, no proof of their existence after their escape was ever found. It's believed Cole and Roe, in spite of all of their planning, actually were stupid enough to enter the bay during a storm and were swept out to sea. Five months later, in May 1938, Thomas Limerick, James Lucas, and Rufus Franklin, all bank robbers and all-around assholes, were ready to make their grand escape. Of the three men, Lucas had been the most infamous. He made headlines in 1936 when he stabbed Alcatraz's most notorious inmate, Al Capone. After serving some time in solitary for the attack on Capone, Lucas had earned his spot working in the prison's woodshop. Laboring alongside him were Limerick and Franklin. Together, the three men planned their escape, and they were going to use something the previous escapees had not. They were going to use weapons. Weapons are hard to come by in a prison. Well, they're supposed to be. Aside from a toothbrush sharpened into a shiv, anything dangerous would have to be smuggled in, which was difficult with Alcatraz's security measures. It's not like they let the prisoners have access to dangerous things like hammers or... Oh, what's that? Oh, actually, that's exactly what they did. On May 23, 1938, Limerick, Lucas, and Franklin were in the woodshop where they worked unsupervised and put their plan into action. They grabbed a hammer, lead weights, and pieces of iron and made their way upstairs towards the roof of the industries building. On their way, they came across a corrections officer named R.C. Klein. Before Klein even had time to process what was happening, one of the men hit him with a hammer repeatedly. Once Klein was subdued, and by subdued, I mean lying on the ground dying, the three men made it out the window where they cut the barbed wire and crawled up to the roof. This is when their plan really gets interesting. The roof housed a glass tower, manned by an armed guard. The men expected this. They knew the guard would be no match against the three of them. They could disarm him and use his gun to hijack a boat going off the island. They just had to get at him. Standing on different sides of the tower, Limerick, Lucas, and Franklin threw the lead weights and bits of iron at the glass window. Instead of shattering the window, most of the objects just bounced off. Only one piece of lead breached the glass and hit the guard in the leg. In spite of suffering this little ouchie, the guard reacted quickly, much more quickly than the hopeful escapees. The guard managed to get off two shots, hitting Franklin in the shoulder, and Delimerick, the poor bastard, took one to the head. As more guards swarmed the roof, Lucas surrendered very quickly. 
Limerick died from the shot to the head, and the prison guard R.C. Klein died the next day from his injuries. Rufus Franklin and James Lucas were given life sentences with the possibility of parole for the murder of Klein. Lucas spent 20 more years in prison before being paroled and spent the next 40 a free man, with the exception of a short stint for a parole violation. He died in 1998, which I thought was just a few years ago. But I've been informed of the shocking news that 1998 was, in fact, over 20 years ago. Rufus Franklin was paroled 36 years after the escape attempt but died the following year having spent nearly his entire adult life behind bars. But hey, at least he was alive, which is more than we can say for our next escape artist, Arthur Doc Barker. But first, we are going to take a quick jailbreak right here to talk about our sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. During my long days in solitary confinement, I really wished I had something to do other than saw at my prison bars. And that's where the Great Courses Plus comes in. I've gone through a few courses already, like the obsessive human being I am, and I think the Skeptic's Guide to American History would be right up your alley. Lectures 16 and 17 in particular, covering the Roaring Twenties and Herbert Hoover and the Great Depression, give the societal backdrop to this episode on the rise of crime in the 20s and 30s. I mean, come on, right now tell me three facts about President Herbert Hoover that don't include his name or that he was a president. You can fix that knowledge gap with the Great Courses Plus. You'll have access to thousands of other lectures, too, from experts in their fields on topics such as meditation, travel photography, and secret societies. So put down the Tommy gun and stop robbing banks. Instead, sign up for The Great Courses Plus, which you can watch or listen to from nearly anywhere that isn't solitary confinement. Get that awesome feeling of pride that comes with knowledge. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus. They're offering my listeners this amazing deal. Three months of unlimited access for just $30. That's only $10 per month. But to get this limited time offer, you must sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash rusty. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash rusty. One more time for the people on cell block A, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash rusty. Why Arthur Barker was called Doc is beyond me. It wasn't for his brains. He's generally been described as a dim-witted psychopath, which must have been a disappointment to his mother, famed crime boss Ma Barker, who was an intelligent psychopath. At least, that's the version of Ma Barker that we've been given. There's a lot of doubt of how much she participated in the criminal activities of her various sons. She benefited, no doubt, from the family business, and she certainly covered for them. But as for being the leader of the gang, some believe that myth was built after the FBI killed her during a shootout with one of her sons. The only way they could justify the death of a mostly innocent woman was to make her sound not at all innocent. But the myth of Ma Barker is another story for another day. 
Dr. Parker is the only one of her bad apples we are concerned with today. Parker was a troublesome prisoner, and the forced routine of Alcatraz did little to control him. He was sent to the segregation unit, a.k.a. Cell Block D, to cool his heels and enjoy virtually no privileges other than food. Yet somehow, Barker and four other inmates in Cell Block D, Dale Stamphill, William Martin, Henry Young, and Rufus McCain, managed to saw through four sets of prison bars, hiding the progressive damage with a putty concoction that they had made. Yes, they were in the toughest prison in America and segregated from the rest of the prison, but these men still managed to get a tool capable of sawing bars. Eventually, they broke through the window. On Friday, January 13th, 1939, it was go time. That's right, Friday the 13th. The men were hoping it wouldn't be unlucky for them. Like Cole and Roe before them, the five men used the winter fog to hide themselves from the guards in the towers. They managed to make it all the way to the beach undetected, something that would have been impossible on a clear day. It was at 4 a.m. when a guard doing his usual patrol of cell block D found the men gone. He raised the alarm and guards started a ground search after the spotlights on the prison proved useless in the dense fog. In the meantime, Doc Barker and Dale Stamphill tried to swim. The current pushed them back to shore. Dripping wet, the men then grabbed debris from the shore and tried to make a raft, using their own shirts as lashings. Before they could finish the raft, a guard spotted them at 4.47 a.m. He yelled at them to stop, and Martin, Young, and McCain immediately threw their hands in the air like they just don't care. But Barker and Stamphill weren't going down so easily. They kept trying to huck Finn their raft on the move when the guard shot both men, hitting them in their legs. What happened next is somewhat debated. The official story is that Barker continued to resist capture and was shot again, this time in the head. Stamphill, however, said the associate warden had told the guards to shoot if Doc moved, and when Doc grabbed for his injured leg, he was shot. Doc later died of his injuries. The other men were sent to the segregation unit because it had worked so well to control them in the past. The next escape attempt, over two years later, started with so much drama, but then petered out not unlike True Detective. The main issue with this escape was lack of preparation. While others sawed through the bars for days and weeks, Joe Kretzer, Arnold Kyle, and Lloyd Barkdahl thought they could do it in minutes. They were working in the mat factory on May 21, 1941, when they called a guard in to check a piece of equipment that was supposedly not working. When the guard entered, they overpowered him and tied him up. They then got to work on breaking through the window. Most of the inmates just shuffled off to another room, not wanting to get involved, but also not exactly sounding the alarm. One man, Sam Shockley, decided why not help the escapees. As guards came in over the next hour, the men overpowered them one by one until they had four guards hostage. The last guard, Captain Paul Madigan, managed to talk the men down using the whole 
if my boss doesn't hear from me, they'll come looking line. Not really sure that prison guards made great collector's items, the men considered their options. The bars weren't budging, and they didn't have much time left. The four men, Kretzer, Kyle, Barkdahl, and Shockley, all agreed to let bygones be bygones and release the guards. The guards had different ideas about this, and the original three planners were sent to solitary confinement. Barkdahl convinced the warden that Shockley had nothing to do with the planning. The warden was quick to believe him. Shockley had suffered multiple traumatic brain injuries in his life and battled severe mental illness and had a low IQ. Planning wasn't his thing. He was allowed to return to his cell. But remember Joe Kretzer and Sam Shockley because they're not done yet. They believe the old adage, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. So what are we up to? Escape number six. Our next hopeful escapee is a lone wolf. Prisoner number 466, John Richard Bayless, showed up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed to his first day of work on the island on September 15, 1941. He had earned the right to do the garbage. As we've heard before, a fog rolled in, obscuring the view from the guard tower. Bayless thought, why not? and headed down to the shore. He stripped down to just his pants and headed into the water. But a member of the Polar Bear Club, he was not. By the time the water hit his chest, Bayless thought, oh, this is why not. In the meantime, his absence had been noticed. By the time the guard got to the shore, Bayless was practically begging to be taken back into the prison in the hopes of finding a blanket. But Bayless didn't lose the passion for not being in prison. Over a year later, in December 1942, Bayless was in court over an appeal of his 25-year sentence for bank robbery. He might not have been ready to swim the San Francisco Bay, but he was ready to run. While in the courtroom, waiting for his hearing, he hopped a railing and made a break for the door. He made it about as far as he did on his attempted escape from Alcatraz. That is to say, not far at all. A U.S. Marshal grabbed him before he even got one foot out the door. Escape number seven. April 14, 1943. We have four more esteemed colleagues working in the industry's building. James Borman, Floyd Hamilton, Harold Brest, and Fred Hunter were working without issue around 9.30 in the morning. Suddenly, they whipped out their... shivs and threatened the guard watching over them. They managed to bound and gag him before using a bar spreader to pry the bars open far enough that they could sneak through. The captain of the guards noticed that the guard who was supposed to be posted outside the shop was gone. He walked into the room to see what was going on, and the four men waved their shivs at him as well. He surrendered and they bound him up. Leaving the two guards, the four men made it out the narrow window opening they had created. Guess how they shimmied through. No, go on, guess. If you said they got down to their tidy whities and slathered themselves in grease, you're right. The men had already hidden buckets with non-prison clothes on the island to change into. But the window they climbed through had one little thing between it and the shoreline. 
a 30-foot cliff that was a straight-ass drop to the water. So these lubed-up fools jumped mostly naked while holding onto old tires they intended to use for flotation. One of the bound guards managed to get his whistle free to try to alert to the escape, but no one heard the whistle over the escape alarm that was sounded simultaneously. An officer had already spotted the men in the water. The guards in the tower did what they were trained to do. They began shooting at the men as they attempted to swim. One of the men, James Borman, was hit. When the prison boat came into the bay to grab the men, they found Harold Brest treading water and trying to keep the unconscious Borman's head above water. As Brest reached out to take the guard's hand to be pulled into the boat, he lost grip on Borman. Borman went under and his body was never recovered. Fred Hunter, meanwhile, had hurt his back either in squeezing through the window or in the drop to the water. He knew he couldn't make the two-mile swim to the mainland, so he swam over to a cave to hide out. A prison boat pulled up alongside the entrance. One of the guards called into the cave, commanding Hunter to surrender. Hunter decided, nah. But this was Alcatraz where the guard's unofficial motto was shoot first, ask questions later. So the guard fired around blindly into the cave. He didn't hit Hunter, but he did make a rather persuasive argument for surrender. And Hunter came out willingly. Floyd Hamilton, known as a member of Bonnie and Clyde's gang, remained missing. The warden announced the next day that Hamilton, like Borman, had been shot in the water and the guards saw him sink. He was definitely dead. Boy, did he have egg on his face when three days later, Hamilton was found back in the prison. Hamilton said that before the shooting started, he grabbed a plank and tried to use it to help keep him afloat while he swam to the shore. But he realized the plank wasn't enough, and he couldn't make it. When the shooting started, he let go of the plank and swam away. This was when guards thought he had gone under. He had hid out in the same cave that Hunter was found in, but he had crawled farther back where he couldn't be seen. He shivered and starved for the next few days, until he realized he wasn't going to make it. This cave was right along the shore, and when the tide came in, it partially filled with water. Using the energy he had left, Hamilton hit the rewind button on his escape. He climbed up the cliff and squeezed back through the window, which, for some reason, had not yet been secured. When a guard was searching the workroom for evidence related to the escape, he found Hamilton cowering in the storeroom. Who knows what Hamilton's endgame was? Did he think he could just slip back into his cell like nothing happened? Or was he hoping just to get enough supplies to attempt to get off the island again? Whatever his plan, it was not to be. But at least he survived. As did our next escapee, one of Hamilton's old pals from their Bonnie and Clyde days, Huron Ted Walters. Five months after Hamilton was caught, Walters was working in the laundry room of the prison when he simply walked out, climbed the fence, and made it to the shoreline. He was found hiding out about an hour later. He hadn't even made it into the water since he decided that it was too cold. And that's it. The most boring escaped attempt of all. Escape number nine, though, isn't boring. 
It's actually brilliant. Inmate John Giles was 50 years old and certainly not in the mood to shimmy through windows or dive into frigid waters. He decided to do what all men of mature years learn, work smarter, not harder. By July 1945, Giles had been on Alcatraz for 10 years. He spent eight of those years loading and unloading supplies from the docks. One of the things delivered to Alcatraz regularly were army uniforms. Inmates working in the laundry would clean them and ship them back out. When the bags of uniforms were loaded and unloaded, they were searched for contraband. But they were not inventoried. Over the course of who knows how long, Giles managed to steal an entire uniform, one piece at a time. He even snagged a set of dog tags. When an army boat came to Alcatraz on July 31, 1945, Giles cosplayed his way onto the ship. As they crossed the bay, they did a headcount and came up one soldier too many. On Alcatraz, they did a headcount and came up one deckhand short. The assistant warden hopped into a boat of his own trying to intercept the army ship. But he hadn't have been in such a hurry. The boat wasn't going to the mainland. It just went to nearby Angel Island, where Giles would have had no hope of making a break for it. The assistant warden arrived at Angel Island and waited on the shore for the soldiers to debark and snagged Giles immediately. Nice try, old man. Now, we are on escape number 10, a.k.a. the Alcatraz Blastout, a.k.a. the Battle of Alcatraz, a.k.a. more people are going to die. Bernard Coy was the ringleader of this group. He had watched the habits of the guards and the prison routine closely to time their escape. He decided that force, rather than sneaking away, was the way off the island. On May 2, 1946, Coy calmly swept the floor of cell block C at a time when most of the guards and inmates were in the work areas of the prison. He watched as Bert Birch, the armed guard perched on a gangway, walked to another cell block. With Birch's back to cell block C, another prisoner named Marvin Hubbard called out to Officer William Miller on the floor. He had just finished cleaning the kitchen and was ready to go to his cell. As Miller was patting Hubbard down to make sure he wasn't smuggling any knives or high-carb snacks from the kitchen, Coy attacked him from behind. With Miller overpowered, they freed two more charmers, Joe Kretzer and Clarence Carnes. Do you remember Joe Kretzer from Escape Number 5? I told you to remember him, so I hope you slackers listened for once. It was time for Step 2 of Coy's plan. The gangway where gun-toting Birch was patrolling housed the weapons, and Coy knew it was only protected by weak bars. So he made a simple bar-spreading device to widen the bars. But I know what you're thinking. Unless these are Acme bars, and this is a Looney Tunes cartoon, there is no way spreading two bars would make a space big enough for a full-grown man. Koi figured this out, too, and had spent months starving himself until he was skinny enough to fit. Wouldn't it be something to see what Koi could have done with life if he decided to do pretty much anything 
other than rob banks and escape prison. Anyway, Koi got access to Birch and managed to overpower him as well. Koi grabbed prison keys, pistols, gas grenades, a rifle, and some billy clubs. He held on to a gun, but threw the rest down to his accomplices before going to the isolation unit, D-Block. Being a segregation unit, cell block D was only accessible through a locked door that connected it to the main cell house. Koi sweet-talked the guard into opening the door to D-Block to let his accomplices in. The guard obliged, persuaded by the rifle shoved in his face. They then bound this guard as well. Once in D-Block, they opened the cells for more inmates, including Myron Thompson and Sam Shockley. Remember Sam Shockley? He was the second person I told you to remember from before. Keep up. Though a dozen cell doors were now open, only Shockley and Thompson joined the four original escapees. The rest could only see one way this would end. And it wouldn't be freedom. So they stayed in their cells. So we have six armed inmates and three guards held hostage. All the men needed was to find the key that unlocked the yard gate. They could then head for the dock and get off the island. Who knows what Koi's plan was past this, because, well, he didn't get past this. Koi didn't account for the persnickety Alcatraz locks. As he and the others tried all of the keys they stole, not one unlocked the door, no matter how hard they tried. And trust me, they tried. They used so much force, so many times, that they jammed the lock. So when they found the right key, by searching one of the guards, it wouldn't work. The escapees had actually locked themselves in the prison. God, that is beautiful. Except this made the men something you never want someone with a gun to be. And that is desperate. Trapped in the cell house, they had to take additional guards hostage as their routine rounds brought them into the area. In no time at all, they had a total of nine guards held hostage, crammed into two cells. Interestingly enough, no one else in the prison seemed to know anything was going on until around 2.30 in the afternoon, when Koi himself alerted them to it. Using the rifle he had stolen, Koi shot at a watchtower, hitting one of the officers and injuring him. And this raised the alarm that some shit was going down. Panic set in among Koi's accomplices. Thompson and Shockley told Kretzer he had to kill the guards they held hostage. After all, those men could testify against them about their escape plans. Yes, that's right. These geniuses thought that killing the guards would somehow prevent everyone from knowing that they tried to escape. Unfortunately, Kretzer wasn't exactly a power thinker himself, and he obliged. Luckily, he also wasn't a great shot. He hit five of the nine guards, only one of them fatally. Three of the men, Carnes, Thompson, and Shockley, decided this was good enough and they went back to their cells 
to pretend to be innocent as the driven snow. Coy, Kretzer, and Hubbard were ride or die, and somehow they thought they'd beat the odds and not actually die. But they'd be wrong. At 6 p.m., a squad of armed guards attempted to enter the gun gallery to overpower the men, but were pushed back by gunfire. The inmates hit a number of the officers, killing one of them. So now they're really in a pickle. They've killed two prison guards and injured eight others. But the main focus for prison officials was to rescue the surviving hostages, and they managed to do that around 8 p.m. So now they are in a double pickle. They've killed two guards, injured eight, and now they have exactly zero hostages to bargain with. The standoff continued into the next day, May 3rd. Around noon, the men called the warden to negotiate a deal. The warden answered that the deal was that they could surrender and not be killed. The men wanted more. Perhaps a little consideration with sentencing, since, well, they killed two guards. The warden's response was, and I quote, LOLS. There were a few attempts to flush the men out, and lots of shooting into the cell block throughout the day and night in the hopes of ending the siege. Then, at nine in the morning on May 4th, things seemed quiet. Too quiet. The guards cautiously moved through the cell block and eventually found the bodies of the three men in a utility corridor that ran behind the cells. Case closed on those three. But we still have Carnes, Shockley, and Thompson playing at innocence in their cells. But thanks to one of the hostages writing down the names of all six men involved, the guards didn't buy it. The three were arrested, tried, and convicted for first-degree murder. Carnes walked away with a life sentence because the hostages testified that Kretzer told him to kill the guards, and he did not. Bonus points for him for not being a cold-blooded murderer that day. But Shockley and Thompson were given the death penalty. There was some surprise over this since Sam Shockley was, quite clearly, not all there. But all attempts at clemency were ignored. Shockley and Thompson were executed together on December 3, 1948. This overpowering of the guards and the nothing-to-lose attitude of the inmates caused Alcatraz to beef up security inside the prison. It wasn't enough to just give the men the idea there was no way off the island. They knew they had to make it so they wouldn't even bother trying. And it worked. It was ten years before the next escape attempt. Floyd Wilson was working on the dock on July 23, 1956. He was there when they counted prisoners at 325, and then at 345, he was gone. Since a boat had just left the dock, there was an assumption he had stowed away, but he wasn't found on the boat. He was found hiding out on the shore of Alcatraz 11 hours after he was discovered missing. Boring. Let's move on. Escape number 12 occurred on a foggy day. On September 29, 1958, two inmates, Clyde Johnson and Aaron Burgett, were working the garbage detail outside the cell block around 3 p.m. What is it with the fog and the garbage men? 
Anyway, on the way back up toward the cell house, the men pulled a contraband knife on the armed guard supervising them and then tied him to a tree. Johnson and Burgett then headed to shore using that ever-familiar bay fog as cover. It worked because no guards spotted them. Forty-five minutes later, when they didn't report back inside the cell block, the alarm sounded. It took less than fifteen minutes for guards to find the officer and untie him from a tree. He told the guards that the escaped men made a comment about having a boat waiting for them to aid in their escape. The Coast Guard patrolled the bay looking for a sign of the men or the boat. They did not find a boat, but they did find Clyde Johnson, standing up to his waist in water. It took around two hours for Johnson to make it a few yards from shore. Way to go, champ. The search for Aaron Burgett continued, and as night fell, some wondered if he really did make it to a boat. The prison went on complete lockdown for days with the inmates only being allowed out at mealtime, because the guards were busy searching for Burgett. They were running a skeleton crew, a perfect time for someone else to escape. But the warden was wise to this, and the men had no chance at making a break for it. Before the week was out, the warden told the media he was confident Burgett was not on the island and had drowned in the bay. The FBI wasn't so sure owing to Burgett's brother leaving their home state of Missouri and moving to California shortly before the escape attempt. Had he moved out there to help his brother disappear by boat? But about two weeks later, that question was answered when Burgett's body was found floating off the coast of Alcatraz. Though the body was badly decomposed, it was wearing prison clothing and a belt with number 991 on it, Burgett's prison number. It appeared Burgett was prepared for the swim. Attached to his belt was a plastic bag presumed to make him buoyant. He had taped his pant legs closed at the ankle, likely to keep them from ballooning out and creating drag. He wore long underwear over his pants, safety pinning them in place. And taped to his prison-issue boots were the remnants of homemade wood fins. The fins had broken off at the toes. They just don't make escape equipment like they used to. Like a hotel elevator, we are skipping escape number 13. Not forever, just until the next episode. Escape number 14 occurred on December 16, 1962. It was the last escape from Alcatraz. Not because they made Alcatraz more secure, but rather because they closed it for good Three months later. Three months was all these guys would have had to wait to get off the island and try to escape from an easier prison. But clearly, patience was not their strong suit. While working in a storage room below the kitchen, Darl Parker and John Paul Scott went into the bathroom where they already knew they could bend some bars. Using a rope, they climbed through the bars out the window and down to solid ground. They made it all the way to the shore with homemade water wings they made out of rubber gloves. Water wings, like four-year-olds at a backyard barbecue. They made it into the water undetected. No one realized they were missing until a cell check at 547. An immediate search began, and that was some good luck for Parker. 
When they found him, 25 minutes after the alarm sounded, he was caught up in a group of rocks off the west shore of the island suffering from hypothermia. Much longer and he likely would have drowned. Scott, on the other hand, he's the last man to attempt to escape Alcatraz. And he made it. He freaking made it. Well, more or less. At 7.40 the next morning, the police got a call from a group of teenagers who found an unconscious man at Fort Point at the southern side of the Golden Gate Bridge. It was John Paul Scott, suffering from exhaustion and hypothermia after his two- to three-mile swim. Well, more like float. He let the currents do most of the work. It's fortunate for him that he made it to Fort Point because on the other side of that was the Pacific Ocean, where he certainly would not have been rescued. When Alcatraz closed, John Paul Scott was sent to Leavenworth Prison, where it would be really difficult to make an escape by swimming since Leavenworth is in Kansas, famous for not having a shoreline. But Scott proved something not previously believed. Someone could escape Alcatraz by swimming. He is credited as the only person to successfully escape from Alcatraz since he made it to San Francisco alive. But was he? If he survived the swim, maybe so did the three men who made up escape number 13. And with that cliffhanger, I will be back in two weeks with an episode about the most famous escape from Alcatraz. The case of Frank Morris and brothers John and Clarence Anglin. Thanks for listening to Rusty Hinges. For a daily dose of my comedic wit, follow me on the socials. Just look for Rusty Hinges on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just FYI, I'm the podcast Rusty Hinges, not the drag queen. If you'd like to financially support the show, we offer many episodes on a monthly basis on both Patreon and Himalaya Plus. Rusty Hinges is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website at basementfort.com for information, including sources for each episode. And when you get tired of humor, go listen to our more serious true crime show, Crime Lines, hosted by Charlie. Until next time, stay rusty, you bunch of weirdos. (laughs) 